0: Take with me your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2. We are now in the second of a series of messages on why believe. And today we consider the question, why does God allow suffering? It is not an easy question and there certainly are no simple answers. And the best we can do is to get insights to the issue in order to bring about some resolution or acceptance of things that we cannot understand. If you have a question about somebody, you need to go to the source. Go find out. Go ask. If I want to know how to get into the U.S. Air Force. I'm not going to stand back and criticize the process. I'm going to go to the recruiter and say, now tell me exactly what is the process and what is the Air Force like so that I can make a decision as to whether I want to join. Same thing is true of a lot of things in life. If, if you want to play in Little League, young men, you don't just criticize the process of getting on a team. You go ask the person who is in charge of the rules and you get information and you find out what the process is. The issue of why does God allow suffering is not a, does not lead us to a discussion of suffering. It doesn't even lead us to a, a discussion of evil. What it leads us to is the nature and character of God. That's why I phrase this question, why does God allow suffering? So, if I want information about God, I'm going to go to the source, God's own self disclosure in the Word of God. And as I go to get insights and I learn how God works today, how He will work in the future, and how He worked in the past, I now get information so that I can make a decision to surrender or yield my life to the God who is in control of this world. Now, does that make sense to you? And there are four things that I'm going to throw out before us, and then I'm going to answer them by looking at how God has worked, what are His ways, and what is His nature. Question number one regards the origin of suffering. Let's look at God from this question in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. He's already made the man. And uh, chapter 1 gives us a summary disclosure of his creative method. Chapter 2 is kind of a flashback to give us insights. So we read in verse 15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it, to cultivate and to guard it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now here's the beginning of the origin of all suffering and struggle and death. A moral God created a moral world and a moral creature in man. A moral God created a moral world and a moral creature because we reflect the nature of God. If God is a moral God, his work will be reflected. If you're a depressive artist, you're going to reflect that in your artistry, in your picture, right? You reflect your nature. God created man in his image. The appropriate response of the man God made is to yield as the creature to the Creator to carry out a very special spiritual, relational, and emotional relationship with God. That's what we must do. When when Shirley and I had four children, I intended to have a relationship with those children. I intended to have an emotional relationship. I intended to have a spiritual relationship. And when God made man, he intended to have a relationship with man. And since man is the creature and God is the creator, it is up to us to yield to the creator in order to carry out that relationship. As a matter of fact, a good example of that is not a created being, but the eternally existing God the Son. God the Son existed in relationship with God the Father, right? Right? And God the Father loved God the Son, so God the Son loves the Father back by obeying him. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus says, if you love me, you will what, class? Do you remember? Keep my commandments. Because the proper response of a creature to the Creator is obedience. The proper o- response of a son to the Father is Filial obedience, amen? And all the boys said amen. Just always remember that, boys. The proper response of a son to the father is filial obedience. Eddie, was there anything else you wanted me to tell them while I'm on this subject? <laughs> Just keep it up, huh? Okay. That's the proper response. So there, a cycle is created. God loves a son. The son loves a father. The creator loves a creature. The creature loves the creator. Now, if that is the nature of anything moral, and we're made in God's image, it is the nature of God to give us choice. Would anybody here like to surrender your capacity to choose what you had for breakfast this morning and be a robot? Uh, Can you imagine what would happen if we would set up pagers and computers so that everybody, when you joined Calvary, you no longer had choice. You were a robot. And a computer controlled everything you did. Can you imagine that? I mean, I don't want to live in Anybody here want to volunteer for that? Huh? No, I don't think so. So when God made man to reflect his image, he made him with choice. And the choice is right here. You see it? And the Lord God commanded the man of every tree you may eat but one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, how would God have known that man loved him unless man had a choice not to love him? Now, suppose that Larry, every day when he goes to the office, he takes this huge four-inch logging chain that's 12 feet long, and he wraps it around BJ and padlocks her to the kitchen, says, all right, woman. I love you, and just to make sure you don't leave me, I'm gonna make sure you stay. Oh, I really love my wife. I make sure she's not gonna walk out on me. Now, how many would call that love, and how many would call that slavery? Huh? He doesn't do that, does he, BJ? Of course not. He says, I love you, dear, but if you leave me, I mean, you're free to go. I'm not encouraging you, right, Larry? But you are free to go if you want to walk out on me. God said to man, here you are. Now I want you to choose to love me, and you will show that you love me by the way you use your will that I've given you. It's limited, but you can make this choice. So I put you here, and God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in that garden, not to tempt him to do evil. The New Testament now tells us about God, that he tempts no man for evil, right? What was the purpose of putting the tree there? So that man would choose good. God's choices in our lives are always to prove us good. But man disobeyed. And all choices have consequences. For every action, there is an equal and opposite what? Reaction. When God created electricity, the only way he made it was there's a positive and there's a what? negative and it's true in all of god's world you have that all throughout so if you remove if god had removed the choice for man he would have removed the opportunity for man to love him back and to choose good of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat the tree would make them know good and right If Adam had chosen to obey God, he would have come consciously able to distinguish good from bad. That's what is meant over here in chapter 3. When in verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. That doesn't mean there are many gods. It's Elohim which is a plural, what Hebrew grammarians call the plural of majesty, that God do is so majestic. Elohim, the word for God, is really a plural form because God is so full of majesties. He will become like one of us. Or, oh, wait a minute. I, let me just throw this out for you Bible students. Maybe, just maybe he was thinking of the angels that God created, a third of which fell and two-thirds of which chose good, so they know good. And if man had chosen good, he would have known only good and been able to distinguish it. I want to tell you, the future of your child hinges on its capacity to distinguish between good and bad in making choices. I can't make it any simpler than that. If they can choose good friends, it's going to bid well for them, bode well. If they can choose bad friends, there are consequences for that action. And so, in chapter 3, you see it happen. They chose. In verse 6, the woman saw the tree was good, pleasant. She took, gave of her husband, made him an apple pie. I don't know what she made. (laughs) I like apple crunch, don't you? Boy, I love a hot apple crunch with butter bubbling over the top, coming out of the oven. And then a great big scoop of vanilla, low-fat yogurt frozen yogurt on top of that baby. And what what really makes it good is when the apple crunch is so hot, it makes the the ice cream or the yogurt just melt a little bit and run down the sides, and it gets your glands salivating, right? Amen. Boy, where do they have that for lunch today? (laughs) So uh, she gave, and when she did, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open. Now, class, look at here. Did they know good? OR DID THEY KNOW SHAME AND GUILT? WHICH DID THEY KNOW? THEY KNEW SHAME AND GUILT, DIDN'T THEY? BECAUSE THEY KNEW THAT THEY WERE NAKED AND THEY they TRIED TO COVER THEMSELVES AND GOD CAME LOOKING FOR THEM AND HE FOUND OUT THEY WERE NAKED. VERSE 10, I HEARD YOUR VOICE IN THE GARDEN, ADAM SAID. I WAS... SIN ALWAYS BRINGS A FEAR. I WAS AFRAID. I WAS AFRAID. Because I was naked. Now he knows he's naked. He knows he's sinned. He's full of shame and he hides himself. And God said, who did that? Now watch the results for sin. The consequences of their choice in verse 16, for the woman, it's pain and childbirth, In pain you shall bring forth children. There is the entrance of suffering in the world. Right there. It is the direct consequence for sin. God said, in the day you eat, you shall surely die. Now, God didn't cut him off that day, but what God did do is the seed of death was sown in that man, Adam, that day. Pain. And the discipline of the will and subjugation to her husband in verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you've listened, here's yours. Verse 17 Cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Struggle is the result of sin. Right there it is. Struggle. You will struggle with the ground all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. You ever wonder why life is such a struggle? You ever wonder why struggles come in bunches? It entered the human race right there when man sinned, and we're born in the same human race, and then we choose sin also, and now we have our own responsibility for sin. Even though in Adam all die, we also deserve to die because of our own sin. And the second thing God said is death. In the sweat of your face, verse 19, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and dust you are, and to dust you you shall return. Death. So now you have four results of sin. You have pain, you have subjugation, you have struggle, and you have death. What's the origin of suffering? Well, it's right there. And for you and me to argue, well, isn't God responsible for it? Because he made the world and man. Suppose Tim and Kim Jackson are going to train their children. Now, Kim, I'm going to tell you something. This coming a day was going to break your heart to see that little girl get on a bicycle, a two-wheel bicycle with no learning wheels, and watch her take off down the street so, "Oh, she's going to fall. She's going to skin up her nose, her pretty face, her arms, her elbows. But that's a risk Kim has to take for that child to learn how to live on her own and ride a bicycle on her own. And she is willing to take that risk because she is not rearing that child to, to live under her thumb and control for the rest of her life. You are raising that girl to be somebody's wife someday. Did you know that? <laughs> Amen. Going to, all of you men are going to give up your girls one day. Spend your life raising them for somebody else. They're going to say, bye-bye. Here's the bill for the wedding. Bye-bye, Dad. But you see, God loved man, and the only way as a moral God he could create moral man was to give him a choice to know good or to know evil. Tree of what? Knowledge of good and evil. That is why in the New Testament we read there is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man because all of us are under sin. I hate to say it, but that beautiful angel of a wife of yours is under sin. That handsome, loving husband of yours, hardworking, wise, he is a sinner and given the right chance because he knows sin and evil, he might choose sin. And so God could have stopped. He could step in and stop the effect of sin. Then he could do it now. But if he did, there would be no choices left. And, and if there were no choices, then we could never choose to follow God and make Christ the center of our lives and, and be saved. See? When Adam and Eve became aware of God as God, and they became aware of themselves... It opened up a choice for them to put God at the center of their lives or themselves at the center. And if you don't believe that's true about the nature of human nature, I'm telling you, you've never raised a two-year-old. Amen? (laughs) Because at two, all of a sudden they realize their world's a little bit larger than just them and their parents, their mom or dad. And as they begin to be aware of that world, they begin to test you in that world to break away from you. And when they start breaking away from you, what do they start saying to you at age two? No. 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 And those sweet little angels that you thought were just perfect replicas of your family have suddenly been transformed into replicas of your husband's family. (laughs) No. No. What's happening? They're breaking out. They just become aware of themselves as selves. That's what happened to Adam and Eve right here. And when that happened, man had a choice to put himself at the center or God at the center. And man put himself. And when he did, he ruined his nature. He spoiled his nature. I want to tell you something, class. As sinners, we're not just spoiled brats in need of a little help. As Newman, the great Catholic theologian, said, we are rebels against the creator of the universe. That's what's wrong with us. And from that day on, that explains the nature of human nature. We're rebels against God. We took the opportunity to choose good and no good, to choose evil and no evil. And as a result, we plunged the human race into sin. And as a result, man puts himself at the center of his life instead of God. And as a result, we're still doing it, by the way, making ourselves the center of everything. And as a result, there is pain in this life, and there is struggle, and there is death, and there is suffering in this world. Now, let's look at the second issue. The second issue is the dilemma of suffering. Now, here's the dilemma. I want to give it to you, all right? Here here we go. There is a difference in having the capacity to do something the the and the will to do something there's a difference you you got to understand this here's the question now follow it carefully if god has the power to stop suffering and won't then it calls into question his mercy and love and compassion now if god would like to step into the world and stop suffering but he can't it calls into question his power and his sovereignty See the dilemma? Will he? Can he? <laughs> uh, having the capacity and having the will to do something. I, I mean, uh, uh, some of you guys, you you, you have uh, um, you have the the will maybe to marry. Uh, I, I don't know Kim Basinger or, or um, who else. Uh, he used to say Gina, Lola, Brigida, but uh, somebody thinks that's a new dish down at the local Italian restaurant now. The 20s, uh, but anyway, um, uh, you might have the will to marry her, but you don't have the means. You have the power, right? You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Here's God's. Here's the dilemma from our viewpoint about God. Now, here's the truth about God. Now, listen to this carefully. God both can. And he wants to, and he will. And the very fact that he has it yet, but that he will someday in the future when he gathers up all authority and power and lays it down to the feet of God in 1 Corinthians 15, that tells us that he both can and wants to, but he chooses not to because he's accomplishing his will in this world. You say, how could that be that God could love the world and have the power to stop it and not do it? The same way Kim Jackson lets her daughter ride down the street, even though though she knows sooner or later she's going to fall off that bicycle. It's a risk she's willing to take because she loves her daughter. God takes that risk with us in order for us as Christians to build us up into the image of Christ through struggle and suffering. But he takes the risk with the world in order to give them a choice and a chance to be redeemed and restored to what God intended man to be originally. And to lay down his rebel arms and yield as the creature to the creator for life. So God both wants to and can and will. When his purposes purposes are accomplished, God will. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11. Let me just point out to you something very important. God's attributes, like his sovereignty and his mercy, do not exist in in a vacuum. They exist together. They are true at the same time. They are true at the same time. Now, when Gary Edens was raising his boys... There were times you were angry enough at them you could have spit nails, right? You've been there. But you loved them at the same time, didn't you? And there are times we've all disciplined our children, but we did it in love. And she said to us, if you love me, you never do this. (laughs) No, honey, it's because I love you that I'm doing this. If I didn't love you, I would leave you alone, Right? If you see two boys down the street throwing rocks at the street light and I go down and I whip one and I send the other one down the street, which one is my son? Which one is my son? The one I sent down the street because I love him so much, right? And the other is your son, so I take care of him. No, of course not. I love my son, but son, you're not going to grow up throwing rocks at the streetlight. Can you imagine if you learned to do this, what you'd be like at 61 years of age, out there throwing rocks at the streetlight? They'll lock you up. I say to him, now watch when Paul is explaining how God deals with Israel. He says, you know, he loved them but he has dealt in judgment with them, he says in verse 22, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell in judgment. Severity, but toward you goodness. There, Paul teaches us that the goodness and the severity, the sovereignty, the power, and the love and the mercy of God exist at the same time. God is both severe and good, both just and holy and merciful and kind. You cannot draw a line. And I would read. Refuse to let the world define my God for me. I'm going to let God in his word define who God is and how he works. God is not either or. He is both and. If God had no purpose in suffering human life. And the human experience would have lost all meaning. Which is why the nihilists in our world philosophically have come nothing has any meaning. If this is not a moral world where God punishes sin sooner or later, what's the meaning of anything? What's the meaning of anything? Why go through it? Third, what are the limits of suffering? Are there limits? Yes. God manages and controls everything, including suffering. Suffering And struggles are never out of God's management and control. There are four things I want you to see about suffering. God initiates it, God permits it, God limits it, and God manages it. The first thing is God initiates it. Turn over with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has been warned by God that unless he yields his sovereignty to the To the will of God, he's going to suffer for it. And the prophecy from Daniel is in Daniel chapter 4, verse 25. Turn to it. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you. Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. God said, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to initiate suffering in your life. I'm going to bring you down so that you'll know that I'm God. Verse 34, after Nebuchadnezzar lives in the field till his fingernails grew four inches long, and his toenails were six inches long, and his hair was down all over him. (laughs) Boy, he'd need a podiatrist, wouldn't he? After at the end of the time, he said... When his hair grown like eagle's feathers in verse 33, and his nails like birds' claws, wow. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? There. There. God initiated suffering and struggle in Nebuchadnezzar's life just to teach him that God was God. Secondly, sometimes God permits it. Job chapter 1, verse 12. When Satan came into the presence of the Lord and said, I'd like to challenge your son Job, the Lord said to Satan in Job 1.12, Behold, all that he has is in your power. I will give him over to you. I will permit you to cause suffering. God boils. He lost his flocks and herds, and he lost his children and his family, though at the end the Lord restored him. God permits suffering sometimes. But God also limits suffering. In verse 12, only do not lay a hand on his person. You can let him, You can bring suffering to him, but do not lay a hand on his person. Do it to all around him. And then in, in the next experience, God said you can lay your hand on him, but you can't take his life. See, God always limits suffering. God always limits struggle in your life. There's a time when it will end. This too shall pass because God manages and controls it. He can initiate it. He can permit it. He can limit it. And he manages it. Turn to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. When God is about to bring judgment on his people, he uses Cyrus. He uses a pagan king. But he manages Cyrus taking uh, God's people into subjection. He manages him and tells him how far he can go and when he cannot go. Thus says the Lord, verse 1, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, the gates will not be shut. I will go before you, make the crooked places straight, break in pieces the gates of bronze. Verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places so that you can know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. And then look at verse 5, I am the Lord. There is no other, there is no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I create calamity. I create suffering, misfortune. I create it. I, the Lord, do all these things. Why? Well, in this case, he's teaching Cyrus something and he's teaching the children of Israel something. That is a bold statement. So why would God do that to his children for the same reason you discipline your children? If you go to the zoo and stay long enough, you might see a giraffe being born. In his book, The View from the Zoo, a man told about the birth of a giraffe. He said, when the giraffe gave birth, it dropped the baby 25 feet or whatever, however tall it was. The little giraffe babe falls on the ground, lays there. And then the mother giraffe goes over the the baby and whoops it on the side and rolls it over. And the little baby tries to stand up and falls over. Then the mother giraffe walks over it again and whoops it again. You think, what is that mother doing? She knows that if that baby doesn't learn to get up and stand up, it will be eaten alive in, in the forest. And early on, she has to teach it to stand up on its own. And she wumps it usually five or six times. Do you know what womp means? <laughs> I hope you do. She wumps it. That is why in 1 Peter 3.17, Peter says, Suffering is God's will. Suffering is God's will. Struggle is God's will. That's the way God helps you fulfill your calling as a Christian, to turn you into the image of Jesus. He wants you. He'll want you up the side of the head sometimes. Sometimes he'll want the heart. He wants you. The last thing is the triumphs of suffering. Genesis chapter 50. In Genesis, you know this verse. I love this. At the end of the story of Joseph, when he meets his brothers, Joseph says to them in verse 19, his brothers took him, kidnapped him from home, threw him in a pit. He wound up in Egypt. He winds up as vice president of all of Egypt. And then when his brothers are starving, they come down and they get grain from him. And then they find out this is their long lost brother and they're sorry. They're afraid of him, verse 19. Do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. There it is. The triumph of suffering is that God can take every struggle, everything we've ever suffered, cancer in your mother, cancer in your father, heart attack with dad, the loss of a job, the downsizing of a company. The loss of a rebellious son, God takes every evil, every struggle, every suffering, and where the devil means it for good, because God manages it and controls it, God turns it I mean, the devil means it for evil. God turns it to good. The devil hates you. He wants nothing good for you. Everything he wants for you is evil, bad. God loves you. He wants everything good for you. The New Testament counterpart is Romans 8:28. For so we know that God makes everything work together for... What's, what is it, class? Good. God makes everything work together for good that we might be conformed to the image of his son. That's why I struggle. Here's some of the things that come out of, of struggle. Sometimes it's correction. Sometimes it's character. Let patience have her perfecting work, James said. Sometimes it is just focus. We get our eyes on the wrong thing, and God says, Hold it here. I'm gonna send a little bit of pain to make you remember you're not the king of the world. Sometimes, sometimes God allows suffering in order to build strength in us. You can't be strong unless you've exercised that muscle. Your character can't be strong unless it has been tested. Sometimes it's to develop patience. Sometimes it's to bring blessing. Sometimes it's to bring death. Sometimes the triumph of suffering is death. It may be the glory of God. It may be heaven. But I promise you this. God promises to take the created world that he made good that has been spoiled, and make it good again through his Son. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Since man spoiled himself and caused pain, struggle, and death to enter the world, good is a radical restoration in us by God of what we ruined. The ultimate example of that is a cross. So in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says, even though Jesus was the Son of God, he learned obedience by suffering, even the death of the cross. And if Christ is not too good to suffer and struggle, neither are we. Now I rest my case. BUT AS I DO SO, I ALMOST WANT TO FALL ON MY knees. I'M IN SUCH NEED OF RADICAL RESTORATION THAT GOD HAS BEEN WORKING IN ME SINCE THE DAY I WAS SAVED. IN TOUCH AND LIVE, A BOOK, THE AUTHOR DESCRIBES TWO EXPERIENCED GUIDES IN THE ALPS TAKING A YOUNG, INEXPERIENCED CLIMBER UP A SHEER ROCK and then up a snow-covered side of the mountain. And when they finally got to the peak, one guide had been going in front of the young climber, the other guide had been going behind him. And when they finally got to the peak, they said to the young, inexperienced climber, now, you can move on to the top. I'll step aside so that you can be the first to come to the top. And the young climber Exuberantly jumped to the top. And almost immediately, the experienced guy grabbed him and threw him to the ground. And he said, You don't understand. The gale winds up here on top are so strong when you're at the very top that the only place you are ever safe is on your knees. Get down on your knees. It's the only way you're safe when the winds are strong. Amen? I want to tell you, I don't have all the answers. I'm just collecting what the Bible says about the subject. And when I'm done, I don't even claim to be an expert on it, though I've done my share of suffering. But even thinking about the God who is who made us, my response is to fall on my knees. Because the only place I'm safe when the winds are strong is on my knees. Catherine, you've learned that, haven't you? And as I look over this congregation, many of us have learned that and are learning it. That as creatures, we give glory and worship to our God as He restores us. Instead of complaining about the struggle and the suffering, we just rise up and say, thank you, Lord. Just keep me on my knees. Let's stand together in prayer.